You're listening to the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. As we close off the second chapter of the Mishnah of Sukkah, we're going to start today on the seventh Mishnah. As we close off this chapter, we're going to close off everything that the Mishnah has to say about how we build and how we live within the Sukkah. And as ever, the final uh, the final words of a chapter are significant. They're always significant. We'll see that the Mishnah teaches some fundamental principles about the idea of living in the Sukkah at the end of this chapter. But it begins with a very practical issue. And it's an issue which all of us know about if we've ever tried to build a Sukkah somewhere where space is limited. You know, somewhere, maybe we're building a Sukkah on a small balcony, or, or maybe we have a tiny, tiny patch of garden, and space is limited. And picking up in the seventh Mishnah of the second chapter, the Mishnah says, Mishaya Roshove Rubor Vasuka Someone who's got his head and most of his body sitting in the sukkah. But the sukkah's not really big enough for anything else. It's not big enough for anything else than his head and most of his body. And so the Mishnah continues, His table is inside the house. It's as if he's sitting outside on the balcony in his sukkah, but his dining room table is inside the house. There's no space. And Beit Shammai say it's no good. It's pasul. Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel are always much more lenient, particularly with poor people, with people who don't have resources. Beit Hillel machshirin. Beit Hillel say it's kasher. And Beit Hillel actually... Say to Beit Shammai, Amrulahen, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai. Lo, chach, hayam aseh. Look, we've got an incident. And we talked, yesterday, we talked yesterday about the fact that a Mishnah loves learning halacha from real incidents. So didn't we have an incident? Shehal chuziknei Beit Shammai, uveziknei Beit Hillel. Levakeret, Rabbi Yochanan, ben Hachorani, the elders of Beit Shammai, and the elders of Beit Hillel. So everyone went together to visit Rabbi Yochanan ben Chorani. And they found him sitting with his head and most of his body within the sukkah. But his table within was within the house. And we know that many rabbis were not rich. Rabbis did not live in big houses. So this cannot have been surprising. And what happened? Velo amrulo davar. And they did not say a thing to him. I.e., with their silence, they agreed that it was permitted to sit in your sukkah while your table was within the house. Amrulahem Beit Shammai. Beit Shammai said to them, Mishamraya? Beit Shammai said to them, Hang on, do you really get a proof out of that? Af, af hemhayu. What they really said to him was this. If this is how you behave, you've never fulfilled the commandment of sukkah 
in your whole life, i.e. they told him not to do this. And it's very interesting. We know generally, we know generally that the halacha goes according to Beit Hillel. And generally, the rabbis do go out of their way to make life easy for the Jewish people in the sukkah. But it's interesting, this is one of the cases where the halacha does go according to Beit Shammai. And we, I, the, we, I brought the Rambam, the Rambam's commentary on the source sheet. And sure enough, he says just three words, the halacha kveit shamai. The halacha is according to Beit Shammai. If we're going to sit in the sukkah and eat, we want to have our table in the sukkah. Maybe there's some issue about integration or integrality. It doesn't have to be a big table. It can be a tiny, tiny table. It doesn't have to be a table at all. We could be sitting in the sukkah and eating, you know, from a plate on our lap. But somehow the rabbis want everything to be inside the sukkah. Everything, that is to say, that is male. Because the Mishnah goes on to say, Nashim women, slaves and minors. People, effectively, who don't have economic agency. That's really the way Rabbi Michael Broyd in Atlanta puts it. People without economic agency, without the ability to buy possessions. And in other words, to with the economic wherewithal to put up a sukkah. I don't think anyone could argue this applies to women today in a real economic sense. And women today do sit in the sukkah, but formally women are not obligated and neither are slaves or children. Women, slaves and minors are exempt from sukkah. And the Mishnah continues, A man who no longer needs his mother is obligated in the sukkah. The daughter-in-law of Shammai. Sorry, Shammai Hazaken. This is the elder Shammai. The daughter-in-law of, of Shammai the elder gave birth. He opened up the ceiling and he put schach on top of the bed. For the little one. So Shammai seems to have a view that children obligated in sukkah, even at the point where they definitively don't have any sense of consciousness or kavana. Shammai's view militates against everything that we've said about consciousness and awareness and kavana as we've been learning the Gemara and the Mishnah. Because he's putting schach up for a baby who clearly doesn't have any awareness of what is going on. And it's very interesting that the halakha does not go according to Shammai. Children are not obligated in sukkah, at least until they get to the point that they require education. Now, you might ask, by the way, why are women not obligated? One answer given by Michael Broyd is that they don't have economic agency. The Bartanura learns this idea formally from the text. So he doesn't attempt to give a rationale for it. By the way, the Rambam learns in exactly the same way from exactly the same text, although I've brought the Bartanura on the source sheet just because he's a little bit more expansive and a little bit clearer. And it's useful just to look at his words. Women and slaves and children not being obligated 
And he then explains, Da'amar Kra, the text says, the Torah says, Kol ha'izrach b'Yisrael yeshvu basukot. Every citizen in Israel shall live in Sukkot. Maybe, maybe he is agreeing with Michael Broyd, actually. I, I said this is not something to do with economic agency, but the Bartanura and the Rambam are focusing on the word citizen. This is someone who has the ability to play a full role in the nation. Kolha is Rach Israel, Yeshvu Vasukot. And the Bart. Every citizen in Israel shall live in Sukkot. And the Baratanura goes on to say, That language excludes women. And he carries on. For even though they're obligated in the eating of Matzah on the first night of Pesach, so they are obligated in some positive commandments which are bound by time. This is not... this. Eating in the sukkah may be a positive commandment that is bound by time, and we know that women are, are not obligated in some of those commandments. But the Martinur is not bringing that example. On the contrary, he's bringing a parallel example from Pesach. He says they are obligated in the eating of matzah on the first night of Pesach. But, Ein chayavot. They're not obligated in the sukkah on the first night of Sukkot. There seems to be some intrinsic difference between the issue of citizenship or the issue of inclusion on the first night of Pesach and the issue of inclusion on the first night of Sukkot. The Mishnah then goes on to talk about temporal inclusiveness rather than, if you like, personal inclusiveness. And this is going to be the close of the second chapter. All seven days, a man makes his sukkah his permanent residence and his house his temporary residence. We began the chapter, we began the, the discussion about Sukkot by saying a sukkah is temporary. And we're going to end it by saying, yes, it's temporary, but we make it our permanent residence just for seven days. So we temporarily make it our permanent residence and we make our house our temporary residence. Almost as if we're saying, gosh, you know, life is temporary and houses are temporary. We may think our house is very strongly built and we may think it's permanent, but once a year we remind ourselves that is really temporary. And we go out and we live in the sukkah. We live in the temporary residence. What if we can't? And we've seen already, of course, there are many exceptions. And the Mishnah is going to ask, If rain falls, at what point can we clear out? At what point can we leave? And it brings the answer, Mishatisrach, when the porridge becomes spoiled. We're not sure what sort of porridge this is. It might be a savoury porridge. It seems to be some kind of dish that, if you like, is boiled up and thick. And once water starts pouring into it, it's no good anymore. Once the porridge starts getting thinned out by the water, it's no good anymore. We, we can leave the sukkah. How does this work? Well, the Mishnah is going to give an example. Mashlu Mashal. 
they made a parable. Lumahadavardume, what is this like? Leeved this is like a slave who comes to mix a glass of wine for his master. That's us, by the way, right? We bring the sukkah. We bring the sukkah to our master. And what happens? The master takes the ladle. This is the ladle that you use to mix the wine. He takes a ladle. He fills it either with wine or with water. We're not quite sure which. And he pours it over the face of the slave. We bring our master a beautiful drink. He takes it, he throws it in our face. That's what... <laughs> Is a slave obliged to carry on serving his master when his master behaves like that? The Mishnah seems to say, not really. Once you brought the cup, once you brought the drink, you fulfill your obligation. Now, not everybody behaves like this. And I did once have lunch with a Lubavitcher chassid who was dining in the sukkah and the water was pouring into his soup. It was absolutely dripping into his soup. And I asked him about this Mishnah and, and well, you know, why aren't we leaving the sukkah? And the, the, the water was dripping off his hat. He had this big hat, big black hat, and it was pouring off his hat into the soup. And he said, you know, we... It may be that the master has thrown the water in our face, but we are just going to come back and bring him another cup. And that's a lovely parable as well. And it reminds us about the fact that Sukkot, of course, is a festival that's closely connected to rain. It's the beginning of the rainy season. In the subsequent chapters of Sukkot, we're going to learn about pouring water on the altar. We're going to begin praying for rain. We're going to begin or at least mentioning rain in our prayers. This is the time when the world is judged for rain. But we need the right kind of rain. We need the rain at the right time, at the right strength. We need it not so much during Sukkot, but after Sukkot. But we're in delicate, delicate balance. And we see some of that delicate balance in the final halacha of the second chapter about leaving the sukkah once the rain starts to fall. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict.